This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lots of hand-wringing as a new a number of new cases of the coronavirus continues to climb around the world. We take a look at what this means for the economy. Chris McNally is an uh, adjunct senior fellow at the East-West Center and is on the faculty of Chaminade University. He sat down with us last week to talk about the short and long-term view. The biggest difference is that the Chinese economy has really changed. It's a different economy. Uh, It's much larger. It's about 15 times larger than it was back in 2003, and it's much more service-oriented. So that means uh, a lot of things like entertainment, retail, uh, tourism, transport, all of those are much bigger parts of the economy than they were back then. And those parts are the parts that are really being hit hard. Again, we are not really sure how much the various quarantines and, you know, quite drastic measures that the Chinese government has taken have actually helped in reducing the transmissions because uh, the data is very backward looking. And in this kind of a situation, you know, a lot of the data, a lot of people haven't been tested. They've been running out of testing kits. People haven't been admitted to hospitals. There is likely to be a lot of people who are only mildly sick. Uh, They have a cough, you know, sore throat, runny nose, very light fever, who might just quarantine themselves or even just, you know, not go to the hospital. So we're really not quite clear of the extent, but we are now getting people going back to work. So uh, it's likely that transmissions probably could increase, but they're taking all kinds of measures. Everybody's wearing face masks, uh, which helps uh, stop transmission from a person who's sick to others. They're also disinfecting. They also, you know, people are staying away from each other. They're keeping their distance. So all of those things are probably going to be quite helpful, but um, it's, it's a really kind of tough dilemma that China is in. On the one hand, uh, you'd like to shut the whole place down for longer uh, to be really sure that you don't get extra transmissions, but then that also has uh, real disadvantages because you need the economy to get up and running again. Um, there's uh, quite a few reports of uh, certainly shortages of uh, surgical masks, of uh, various protective gear, gowns, etc. But aren't some of those, you know, the masks and the gowns, aren't they made in China? Yes, a lot of them are made in China. They're actually importing quite a lot from also Korea and Japan, from you know other countries around China. Uh, but yes, a lot of that stuff is actually made in China. And those factories, for the most part, have actually already ramped up production uh, in the last week. So they kind of shut down over the Chinese New Year because everybody goes home and has a vacation. Uh, so that was actually not part of the measures to stop the transmission of the virus, but rather just the Chinese New Year. But then, you know, as it became obvious that this was a real problem, they actually asked all those factories to start work early. So a lot of those actually have been ramping up production. And the same thing also with testing kits uh, and other things for various types of medicines, pharmaceuticals. Uh, They've been actually really getting back to work already last week. But the general economy, so everything from car manufacturing plants to transportation services, all of that is gradually starting to ramp up again. A lot of factories, such as uh, the ones around Wuhan, are going to be closed for much longer. There's some very big car manufacturers around Wuhan, also parts manufacturers, uh, which is hurting you know, some other countries around the region as well, because China's deeply integrated economically with South Korea, Japan, and also the United States. You know, so Hyundai is, is, for example, one factory they had to not only close down their factories in China, but also close down their factories in South Korea, because they're not getting sufficient parts to continue their production cycles. So a a lot of uh, the impact on the economy is also tied to how long does this last, if we're talking about a short thing, a prolonged thing, couple months versus six months? So the most important number for the economy right now is actually the level, you know, the amount of new infections that are being reported every day, uh, as well as obviously the amount of uh, deaths uh, that are occurring. As I said, it's, it's really difficult to estimate exactly where this disease stands in terms of its transmission within the Chinese uh, society, uh, because a lot of it is backward-looking. We've had a lot of people who are probably silent carriers, or as I said, with very mild symptoms, uh, and then they didn't have enough testing kits, especially in Wuhan or in Hubei. Actually, Wuhan is getting better from what I'm hearing, uh, but there's uh, quite a few very large cities around uh, Wuhan that, you know, Huanggang and other places that very few people have ever heard about, but these cities have like four or five million inhabitants, uh, and they're really, really struggling. Uh, they have a lack of protective gear, but also a lack of these kits. Uh, their hospitals are absolutely overflowing. Uh, so it's going to take some time to work through this. But uh, the Chinese, uh, at least uh, the people, uh, this is the doctor who uh, was very instrumental during the SARS epidemic, and he's back basically as one of the persons in charge of what is happening right now. And he seems to be optimistic that we will see a leveling off of new cases. 
there's been some drastic action taken where they've stopped flying into some cities, you know, here in Honolulu. What's your sense? I mean, so we're not getting the tourists maybe that we used to. Chinese tourism market actually reached its peak in middle 2018, uh, more or less exactly when uh, President Trump's trade war with China started. And since then, we had actually quite a precipitous decline. So the decline from kind of the peak in June of 2018 to June of 2019 was over 30 percent. Uh, so we had a real decline in tourists, also because it became more difficult to get visas. Uh, but at the same time, there was also an impression of, by the Chinese that you know they weren't so welcome in the United States. And there were many other opportunities, other countries they could go to that are much easier to go to, especially Europe. So I was in Europe during early 2019, basically in the spring. And uh, the major tourist sites are absolutely overrun by Chinese tourists. So... Europe has been really uh, doing very well with Chinese tourists. So USA, Hawaii, not so much. <laughs> not so much. I mean, the big cities, Los Angeles and New York, still have uh, you know quite an important share of Chinese tourists. And as you mentioned, they're really big spenders. So they spend about 325 to $350 per day. Here, that's one of the very highest. Uh, the average is around, I think, 190 180 But in the Hawaiian market, they are... Basically, they've come down to just a bit more than 1% of the market. So now we're going to lose that. That's going to go to zero. That's going to be a bit of a hit, but it's it's not as bad as it could have been. I think the, the concern, though, like what we saw with SARS, is the Japanese tourists because we rely so heavily on that market. And when they get nervous, yes, they stay home. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know the Japanese are, are a very big part of our tourism market. They're about 15%. They also spend... Uh, somewhat more than you know, folks coming over from the mainland. If the virus spreads in Japan, then yeah, the Hawaii tourism market could be in really deep trouble. What do you see in other parts of Asia? Just because we're so interconnected now. For Hawaii, the main market really is Japan, uh, to a lesser extent Korea. Both of these countries seem to be in a relatively similar situation. Uh, They're getting some local transmission, but it's still very, very limited. So we will just have to wait and see. Uh, most of the other markets like Southeast Asia, the Philippines, Thailand, etc., are very, very minor for the Hawaiian tourism market. Although, you know, there's very, very close connections, especially with the Philippines in terms of, you know, people to people. So it, it's going to be difficult to see, but uh, certainly in Japan, and also in Korea, there are increasing calls to basically do the same that the United States has done and, and basically disallow any Chinese or, or non-Japanese coming from China who have been to China within the last 14 days from entering the country. Both South Korea and Japan have not yet taken these measures, but uh, you know there's increasing calls because you're getting more and more cases. Where else do you think we're going to start seeing the impacts of this? It's difficult to tell. I mean, there have been actually some indications that, uh, not with a vaccine, but that there are some effective treatment options uh, that the Chinese are now basically putting into an experimental stage. Uh, so it, it's very difficult to basically judge how this uh, virus is going to continue to spread, how it continues to develop. It could mutate as well. It could become nastier or it could become much milder. But it really depends. I mean, if you look at the stock market, it seems to be taking this whole issue in stride for the po for the time being uh, because the economic impact is somewhat limited, uh, at least so far. But if this continues and if the Chinese don't really get a handle on it, you know, the question is what happens if, let's say, uh, they are able to reduce transportation missions uh, to a very low rate, but uh, it continues. Right. And, and we've got a situation where uh, American companies that are doing business in China are also starting to pull back, you know, whether it's the Kentucky Fried Chickens, the Pizza Huts, the folks that have chains yes. in that area. I mean, it's certainly going to be a hit for quite a few companies. I mean, you look at Starbucks, they had to basically shut down most of their stores in China. McDonald's had to do the same thing in the province of Hubei. China has been a booming retail market. Uh, this, uh, When I started, basically, the Chinese economy has really changed in the last 15 years. It's become a lot more consumption-oriented. Uh, in 2003, 2002, when the SARS outbreak started, China still very much was kind of becoming the factory of the world. Uh, it was a very manufacturing-oriented form of development, whereas now most of the development that's taking place in China is actually consumption-oriented. So China has become one of the biggest markets for movie theaters. All of these have now been shut down uh, for all kinds of entertainment. Uh, Disneyland in Shanghai and also in Hong Kong, both of them have shut down. So this is going to be a, a hit to the bottom line of quite a few American companies. But it's it's difficult to judge at this point because so far most of these retailers or, or entertainment companies or amusement parks have only shut down for about two weeks. Uh, if they shut down for a month, uh, it, it'll be a 
relatively minor hit. But if this goes on, let's say, into late March, into April, uh, then the effects can be, uh, you know, quite intense. Now, I know Japan is getting a little nervous with their Olympics coming up. Uh, uh, I don't know if there are any other big events that uh, China w- was to host uh, or, or maybe conferences that were uh, scheduled here in Hawaii. I am not aware of any um, conferences. I mean, there, there's a major conference in my field in international studies. The International Studies Association is coming up, and my European friends have been asking me whether there will be any influence. But I said, you know, there's, there's no cases so far here, and everything seems kind of normal and quiet. But in the case of China, the next big event is going to be the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022. So that's still quite a still ways, ways off. But yes, Tokyo is very concerned about the Summer Olympics. And again, China is the second largest economy. So even if, let's say, the impacts do not spread to other neighboring countries or to the United States, the fact that China has basically shut down for an extra week that already has uh, you know, a substantial influence. The real question is how much longer can this go? Uh, various reports have said that, especially for Chinese small and medium-sized manufacturers, so these mostly are private companies run by private entrepreneurs, they probably could you know, go on for another two or three weeks. But after that, you, you could start to see mass bankruptcies, uh, and that then could affect the financial system. Right. There are folks that are worried that this could be the thing that sets us into a recession. It could be. Uh, it could be a, a trigger. I mean, we've been kind of, it seems, over the past 18 months hoovering along, you know, and people have always been predicting a recession is kind of just around the corner. And, uh, about a half a year ago, most people were saying, oh, 2020 is going to bring a recession for sure. Uh, now, most would say no, uh, because the trade war with China, one of the major factors influencing these predictions, has kind of calmed down. We have a ceasefire uh, and, you know, some form of agreement between Washington and Beijing that are keeping, you know, these kind of tit-for-tat tariffs on the wrap. Uh, so that's a very positive sign. Uh, the U.S. economy continues to do well. The American consumers is going quite strong. Uh, but you never know if, if this does continue. Uh, and, you know, if worse comes to worse, there, there's really more person-to-person transmission in the United States, and that could also influence the U.S. consumption. Or, as I mentioned, Japan, uh, which is much closer and has many more cases than the United States, um, that could also have a, quite a, you know, consumable influence on the, on the whole world economy. But we already see it in, in things like commodity prices, oil prices, you know, the, what's happening in China immediately has ripple effects throughout the whole globe. It's interesting, in my opinion, how the financial markets have been reacting to this. Their, their first kind of knee-jerk reaction was a big, big drop. Uh, we had one of the biggest drops in the Dow Jones Industrial. Basically, things have been recovering. And, and so it, it's, it's kind of the psychology that you see. And it is something that markets, it's very difficult to deal for them because it, it's not something that you can predict with economics. Uh, and even uh, people who are, you know, immunologists or virologists or, you know, people who study these communicable diseases will have, uh, you know, it's very difficult to predict how this whole thing is going to develop, uh, whether, you know, it, it, it can be contained within the next few weeks, uh, whether it is contained most of it, but then you continue to have transmissions and it could kind of reemerge. It might even reemerge next year again. Uh, so all of these are really big, big unknowns. That was political economy professor Chris McNally talking about the impact of the coronavirus on the global and local economy and the difference with the SARS outbreak that we saw in 2003. Up tomorrow, we continue our conversation on our preparedness to deal with this outbreak. We'll be talking with the Hawaii Healthcare Association CEO, Hilton Rathel. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Eddie would go. The famous slogan probably conjures up certain images and feelings. Maybe it's the famous portrait of Eddie Aikau, stoic and contemplating on board the Hokulea. 
Or the story of Eddie swimming for rescuers after the voyaging canoe was stranded at sea. Or maybe it's Eddie in that iconic surfing stance, riding down a mountain of a wave, but making it look oh so effortless. Or maybe it's the big wave surf contest named in his honor, where the world watches as men ride mountains of water during the most hallowed contest in all of surfing. Every December to February, surf surf enthusiasts wonder if the bay will call the day. But did you know the first Eddie Big Wave Invitational did not happen at Waimea? Uh, where was it first held? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from the Realtors and staff of Locations, proudly supporting HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. HPR is bringing you a number of stories about trash and recycling in this new year. And this morning, we circle back to the issue of composting. Reporter Kuuvehi Hirishi joins us live to talk about the efforts on the Garden Isle. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, we uh, were able to look at this backyard effort pretty much to um, divert a lot of the waste that goes into the landfill on uh, Kauai. And this has been a long-going program for them. So Kauai County has been offering these free composting backyard bins for about 17 years. And so wow. they've <laughs> they've seen getting in there early has really allowed a lot of residents that I have met uh, while on my visit to be exposed to the idea that they have this backyard solution. So uh, food waste or green waste when you're doing your yard, uh, compostable waste really, uh, newspapers, uh, paper, cardboard, whatever you are generating in your household can be uh, put into these composting bins and turned into soil or mulch for you to use in your garden. So it doesn't even get to the point of having to be handled by the county, meaning no pickups, no collection, no having to deal with contracts, uh, contracting someone to do it. Uh, this is something that everyone can do at the household level. And uh, according to Allison Fraley, the Solid Waste Management Program Coordinator for Kauai County, uh, it is one of their most cost-effective diversion programs, aside from trying to get people to recycle and trying to uh, get people to use less waste or generate less waste, this has been the, their top program. It's about a ton a year per household, so it's, it's a significant amount of waste that is being diverted. I've seen other communities that do sales or a subsidized, but it's, you know, considering how much is diverted through this program, it's just a no-brainer to purchase them outright and get, get them out to the public so they can use them. And free really uh, goes a long way <laughs> anywhere when households are thinking about, okay, what can I do to help with the waste problem without having to, you know, strain my, my bank account? That's impressive, though. A ton a year per household? A ton a year, exactly, per household. So we're talking about food waste and, and as I mentioned earlier, green waste uh, on Kauai and I think on, on most of, of our islands and counties here in Hawaii. Green waste is diverted. We, we understand that, okay, this can go somewhere else. And so a lot, I think the diversion rate on, on Kauai is about 64%. So 64% of the green waste that's diverted by landscaping services or um, households, that all is not taken to um, the landfills, but instead turned into mulch or something that can be used as a, a product for gardening. Interesting. So um, it's amazing that Kauai's been at the forefront. Uh, yeah, I guess because maybe they're small and they have that, you know, the, the <laughs> flexibility to, to 
move on a dime. Exactly. And and uh, uh, what I think the total cost of the unit is going to be from 50 to 60 bucks per unit. But when you think about the amount of waste that is diverted, uh, according to Kyolaki, the head of the county's recycling program, they make that money on that one bin back in a year in terms of the amount of waste that's being diverted. So very uh, cost effective. But when they kind of uh, take a bigger look at everything that is going into the uh, to the landfill, so anything that's compostable, all that paper, all that uh, green waste or anything that gets in there uh, that can be composted at the household level. It's trying to figure out how to do that perhaps at a local regional level, right? So a a bigger, large uh, composting a facility, and uh, I met Nikki Kunioka-Vols, a Kapahi resident at the transfer station in Kapa'a, and she had this idea of having the same uh, sort of, you know, all the dumps, having a place for composting, uh, to drop off your compost, so to drop off your food waste, drop off your uh, green waste in those areas and have that composted along where you would take your trash. I would like us to see, like, how we have here, how we have these sort of refuse stations and drop-off points, I'd like to see something like that for compost. That would be awesome, you know, because there are certain things that we don't want to compost at home. There are rodent problems. You don't always want to compost your your meat waste, you know. You don't want to compost your dairy and your cheeses because that brings out the larger rodents and the larger pests. Um, so to have smaller sites that are spread out, for me, would be a huge, huge impact. So thinking about uh, what to do next, I guess, for Kauai, because they are at that point where they're updating uh, their solid waste management plan and perhaps uh, regional composting is something that the residents might want, that they might want to consider to get more of that compostable waste out of the landfill and uh, turned into mulch, essentially, and, and gardens and, and whatnot. Uh, Jesse Brownclay, the project coordinator for Zero Waste Kauai, uh, has done uh, his, his program, and what Zero Waste Kauai has done on, Ka- on Kauai has been to teach the, the younger kids, kids in the schools, what composting is about so that they can see when they take their lunch, right, and they have all this food waste that they can turn that into something that will help them grow more food. But starting with that younger generation, it's educating uh, them about the impact as well of what happens to our organic material when it does go into the landfill, that there are uh, uh, consequences, environmental consequences to having organic waste in the landfill. The issue is that organics in the landfill, so green waste, food waste, stuff that is like biological, when that's in the landfill, it's breaking down and causing leaching, like all the water is kind of running out and, and grabbing up all the other toxic stuff in the landfill and it's hitting the ground and going into the water table, and it's also off-gassing and releasing methane at the same time. So having organics in the landfill is kind of not, not a good thing. The awesome thing is composting is a local solution. And so kind of what we'd have to do is we would collect our food waste and send it to an industrial composting facility. We can also have small-scale regional composting facilities and community gardens. You know, this can be done in our backyard. And so for me, it's just kind of like a, it's a local solution for like a global issue. And uh, in speaking to Fraley, the Solid Waste uh, Management Coordinator for Kauai County, uh, there were some permitting issues in terms of the Department of Health regulates um, whether or not an industrial size composting facility would be available uh, on Kauai or could they could uh, attain the room uh, the permits for them. Uh, she said that there needed to be some changes to allow for that. Um, at that level. So uh, Kauai County has been working with the State Department of Health to figure out how they can move forward with an industrial size uh, composting facility. I do know on uh, the big island, I think the target date was June last I checked. June 2020 was supposed to be the opening for a large-scale composting facility there. So um, I think we're going to see a lot more of uh, those possible solutions, those alternatives to figuring out how to take that compostable waste out of our landfills and uh, divert them early. For Kauai, this is only about 10% of the total waste stream. Uh, but statewide, I, I looked up the numbers, about 26% of the food in Hawaii uh, statewide goes uneaten. So possible food waste that could uh, 
be using compost. Well, I think I'm with the uh, Akoi resident with Nikki that, uh, yeah, I don't want the bugs. I don't want the maggots <laughs> and I don't want the rats. <laughs> there is, yes. So all things we need to talk about when we uh, figure out what to do next. All right. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. That was HPR's Kuvehi Reishi talking about how Koi is leading the state on efforts to encourage backyard composting. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring the Ukiyo-e print series displayed one at a time throughout the year. HonoluluMuseum.org. We continue to talk composting. Honolulu Civil Beat is featuring a story online today about plastics in our soil. Reporter Claire Caulfield joins us this morning for our reality check. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. I was really surprised when I read your story today. And I mean, you hear about plastics uh, in the water, but in the soil. It really made me think about that. Yeah, microplastics in our water is something that's really talked about. It's been a lot of research and the scientific community is really aware about it. But this new trend of finding microplastics in soil, it's an emerging science. Um, a group of farmers came to me with this story saying that they've seen so, so, so much plastic in compost and soil and mulch. And at first I was confused. Same reason. Oh, I didn't know that was a problem. Once I started looking into it, it, it really surprised me as well. And you reached out to what landscapers, right, to find out what they're seeing. Yeah, so um, one landscaper that I spoke with, uh, he's also helps farmers and gardeners plant their fields, and he drops a lot of his green waste off at Hawaiian Earth Recycling, which is the largest provider and maker of compost on Oahu. And so he was seeing how they stopped checking trucks like his when he was dropping off green waste for plastics. He said they used to check it a couple of years ago, but now they're not doing it anymore, and he thinks that's one of the reasons why there's more, an increased amount of plastic. So they just take it, they don't reject any loads? Um, according to these guys, they've said they've seen that um, Hawaiian Earth Recycling didn't want to talk to me for this story. But um, a, a bigger issue, um, a, a bigger reason why there's so much plastic in compost and mulch is um, people throwing plastic in their green waste bins on Oahu. That's where um, most of the material that gets composted at Hawaiian Earth comes from is people's green waste from residential homes and people throwing plastic in there has been an increasing problem. So we're talking like plastic forks and spoons kind of stuff or lids? Anything. Actually the biggest thing would be plastic bags. Um, actually on the side of the recycling bin it says you know plastic bags should be avoided as much as possible, but it doesn't ban them. And I think a lot of people put their grass clippings from their lawnmower. They're putting leaves in plastic bags. And instead of dumping the plastic bag into the green waste bin, they just throw the bag in there. And then um, when all that material gets shredded, obviously those plastic bags get shredded as well and they make it into the compost because they maybe aren't sorting out the plastic um, but yeah it can be utensils it can be plastic bottles people walking down the street not realizing the green bin isn't a trash bin it isn't a recycling bin it's a green waste bin and maybe throwing their bottled water in there gosh you're making me uh, uh, think twice now because <laughs> i have several bags of green waste uh, sitting in front of my garage <laughs> that i was gonna you know it, it they it won't all fit in my one green bin and so i'm just like holding it but Interesting. Okay, I've got to do better on the plastic bags. Yeah, um, that's what some experts I, I spoke with, they say, yeah, it's concerning that perhaps um, Hawaiian Earth Recycling isn't sorting as much plastic out, but it really comes back to Oahu residents. Um, what really inspired me to do this story was whenever I write about microplastics on our beaches or plastic pollution in the water, I get a lot of emails from people saying, oh, well, all this plastic is coming from other countries. There's nothing we can do about it here. Then when I learned about plastic in Hawaii soil, it's like, well, Hawaii residents, you know, we can't really uh, point the finger to any other countries when it's finding when it's showing up in our soil. So, um, yeah, it's something we definitely all need to take a look at in our own lives. But you said it was farmers that first flagged this to you? 
Yes, because they're the ones buying this compost, soil, mulch, um, and using it. And they're obviously, you know, some of these organic farmers, they are really health-based. They really care about the plants. They treat their plants like family. And they get really upset thinking about growing their plants in soil that has a lot of plastic in it. And obviously picking the plastic pieces out, they can pick the big pieces of plastic out but those microplastic pieces they're not able to sift those out and they're also paying hundreds of dollars for this soil so um yeah they're really upset and that's what started this story that's interesting i wonder what uh, the ag department uh, has to say about that you know um and the health department yeah um i did speak to um the health department they don't uh per- they permit composters they don't check it for plastic or anything um because there's no real regulations on the amount of plastic that can be in compost so even though compost is tested for a lot of safety measures uh plastic is not one of them okay interesting but thanks so much uh, uh, uh just you know opened my eyes uh, to <laughs> you know what i do in my own backyard but thank you Yes, thanks for having me on today. All right. That was reporter Claire Caldfield with today's Reality Check. Head to HonoluCivilBeat.org uh, to uh, read her story and more. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting blues and bluegrass band Dirty Cello, performing 7 p.m. Friday, February 21st. Tickets at kahilutheater.org. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, so what's the best gift for your loved ones? Keeping your heart healthy is a great place to start. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to an expert about the signs and symptoms of heart disease and the best way to treat it. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, providing facial, cosmetic, and reconstructive surgery and aesthetic services, including laser treatments, online at a-new-face.com. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence with your Monday Stargazer. They bring us an update on a controversial satellite project that looks to establish a network of high-speed Internet across the entire globe. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, we've got him on the line too. Hey Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey Dave, good to be back. For this week's stargazers, the planet Venus will be bright and easily visible throughout the evening until it sets in the west just after 9 p.m. The moon is beginning to wane this week, and so we can expect to return to dark skies by week's end. And I understand this week you've got an update on a controversial satellite project that we have heard about previously on Stargazer. Yes, it is, of course, Project Starlink, that ambitious venture by SpaceX to deliver broadband internet to the whole planet. It will achieve this by launching thousands of small satellites into space that will act as a giant communications network. However, Starlink has been the source of a great deal of controversy due to the fact that its satellites are visible from the Earth and have been interfering with astronomical imaging and will potentially disrupt the night sky for everybody on Earth. Now, though, Starlink is facing potential legal action in order to stop its assault on the night sky. 
This is such a wild story. So who's putting this together? Well, this is a group of astronomers, dark sky advocates, and concerned citizens. They're preparing a challenge that will force SpaceX and others to enact a sort of environmental impact statement. This will assess the impact that these mega constellations of satellites will have on our view of the night sky. And there are already a bunch of these they've shot up there. Um, so would it affect those? It would not. Right now there's 250 up there at the moment, and uh, they will stay up there until the end of their lifetime. <laughs> there's no way to bring them down, huh? Unfortunately not. Unbelievable. And I'm guessing since this has such strong global implications, this is an international group of folks coming together about this. It is, and they're going to take the case to the International Court of Justice. And there they will argue that the night sky is a shared human right under the World Heritage Convention. They will also file a case with the Federal Communications Commission. Are they going to try to stop the uh, deployment of more of these or maybe get a modified design that would be less of a hassle? Yeah, this is a temporary stop on the situation. What they want is for a proper assessment to be conducted into the impact of these mega constellations. The question basically comes down to this. Do we want to protect our most sacred shared cultural resource, or do we want a worldwide internet connection? And these satellites themselves, Chris, they're not that big, right? They're tiny? They're about the size of a refrigerator. Compared to most satellites, are they small, or are they typical? Is that a typical size? That's actually very small. Most satellites up there, especially communications ones, are about the size of a school bus. But they're causing a lot of concern because they really affect people's viewing. Exactly. The reflective coating on the satellites means that as soon as the sunlight catches them, they can be ablaze in the night sky. And then all of the conspiracy people are like, look, there's another alien. Look, there's another alien. <laughs> right. Well, we'll be looking for your follow-up on that. Very interesting story. And Christopher Phillips, of course, uh, with that. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which is kept at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we remember Eddie Aikau and the esteemed surfing event held in his honor. In 1984, surf brand Quicksilver held the Eddie at a nearby North Shore beach, but the waves were lackluster, and it was a ho-hum affair. After going back to the drawing board, they hit on an idea, a one-day contest at the Aikau ancestral home of Waimea, and only if conditions of 30-foot waves could be sustained all day. It has only been held in those conditions eight times. 28 surfers plus all alternates are invited, and they stay on standby from December through February. The following winter, Eddie's brother Clyde won the contest, and subsequent years have seen Bruce Irons, Kelly Slater, and John John Florence win. Quicksilver sponsored the event until 2016, but the relationship ended after the company could not come to an agreement with the Eichau family. In the winter of 2019, the Eddie, the same event with new, uh, mostly local sponsors and women invitees, awaits for the right waves at Waimea Bay until the end of the month when the holding period ends. But back in 1984, we wondered if anyone who uh, first saw the, uh, the first Eddie at Sunset Beach knew the big surfing event that it would become almost 40 years later. And congratulations to Aleu from Haula. You got the answer. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. There's been much ado about the Oscars and the must-see movies. But just around the corner are the GLAAD Awards. This year, two Hawaii filmmakers got word that their documentary is being nominated for the big gala, which will be held in a couple of weeks in New York City. The award acknowledges projects which advance acceptance of uh, the lesbian, gay, bi, and transgender community. Their film, Ladies in Waiting, takes place in Tonga. Dean Hammer and Joe Wilson are the duo behind this creative endeavor. We hear first from Joe. 
It's a huge honor. I mean, what GLAAD stands for is the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. So it's been around for a long time, and its purpose has been to ensure, you know, the proper representation of LGBT folks in mainstream media and to help shine light on projects that don't often get recognized in the mainstream world. And share with our uh, listeners, um, Dean, what this story is all about. This story is about Joey Mataele who is a transgender woman in the kingdom of Tonga, which is a very small, very religious and conservative island kingdom. And it talks about her struggles growing up, but also about the work that she's been doing to lift up transgender people in the eyes of the society there. And it's about the organization she formed called the Tonga Ladies Association, which provides a, a home for people. Some of them have been kicked out of their houses and also has turned into a group that advocates for, for equality for the transgender people in Tonga. Now, this is the second film that you folks have done together. Uh, the first one was about Hina. <laughs> yeah, the first film we did um, here as directors in Hawaii was called Kumu Hina. It came out in 2014, and it was supported by Pacific Islanders and Communications. Similar story in that it followed uh, a cultural leader here in Hawaii, Hina Le Moana Wong Kalu as a teacher at the time at a Hawaiian public charter school. Um, Hina uh, actually led us to Tonga because years and years ago, I don't know, it was 20 years ago or so, Hina actually won what was called the Miss Galaxy pageant, which is this big international transgender talent pageant in the kingdom of Tonga. So when Kumuhina was finished, we were invited actually to take that film to show it in Tonga at the Miss Galaxy pageant, and that's how we met Joey Jolene Mataele. Wow, that's a nice connect. You know, and I would see you folks out in the community for years following Hina around, you know, to, at the burial council meetings and just everywhere. Uh, and so you spent a lot of time, got some really nice intimate moments with her, uh, and, you know, now you've done this uh, film in Tonga. I mean, how much time did you spend down there? Well, when we originally went, we just spent a week. We brought our cameras with us, and we started filming the pageant. And we thought, this will just be a short film about this drag pageant. It's pretty hysterical. Uh, there are really some funny girls and some funny acts down there. And so when we got back to uh, Hawaii, we started editing that a little bit. And we were going to go back uh, about a year later to finish it up and do shoot one more pageant. And that's when Joey told us, well, we're not going to do a pageant this year we've decided that instead we're going to start advocating for our rights and we're going to have a big national conversation and a sort of a convention to start a conversation about decriminalizing our lives here in Tonga. And that's when we said, you know, this should be more than just a short film. This is really turning art into activism and something that we should follow. So we then went back three more times altogether. Uh, we didn't spend as much time as we do here in Hawaii, but each trip revealed something new. So it was an exciting process. Can you talk about maybe something that really struck you during your visits down there, Joe, when you were down in Tonga? Yeah, I think, as Dean said, there we were filming during a year when there was a change going on in the discourse uh, in the kingdom about how lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people should be seen and treated. And what really struck us was that the uh, opposition to more visibility and acceptance for LGBT people in that country was actually coming not from people looking at this from a Tongan cultural perspective, but from evangelical religious agitators who had the backing of a big broadcasting network here in the United States called the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And they were prompting people in Tonga and many other parts of the world to start you know, using the kind of opposition we see here in the U.S. to more respect and equality inclusion for people in countries around the world. And I think that made us feel even more so that it was our responsibility as people from the U.S. to help shine light on these divisive forces that are being, you know, kind of promoted and perpetuated from, from our shores. One of the really striking things in Tonga is it is still a monarchy, and there's a king and a queen, and they own the country. So it's a serious monarchy. Um, they love the Leites. Joey herself is of a high-ranked family that has always served the monarchy, and they're very close. She would sit right at the side of the queen and converse with her. And in fact, 
the sponsor of the Tonga Ladies Association is a high princess. She's the daughter of the queen. So that is the real Tonga, and that is very supportive of gender diversity, and it always has been. Um, it almost felt to us like it was outside missionaries from the U.S. and from uh, New Zealand and Australia coming in who were spreading and these new ideas about gay is bad and sort of stirring things up a lot. And so this film, where did it make its debut? So we were lucky that the film premiered actually at the British Museum in London. It was quite an exciting opportunity because there was a delegation of uh, Tongan officials there. Uh, and since that launch, it has really traveled around the world, from Tahiti to all across the U.S., throughout Europe. We actually did a tour in China with the film. Um, and, of course, uh, Joey and other members of the Tonga Ladies Association have been traveling with this film around the Pacific because it's become an important way to bring people together in communities on small islands throughout the Pacific to you know, talk about these issues, see people's lives that they can really identify with and strategize together about how do they have these conversations in their communities and countries to help create change. And to fund a film like this, I mean, is it hard um, to get the support behind endeavor, an endeavor like this? Well, when you talk about a film about transgender activism in the kingdom of Tonga, it's not an easy sell. If we were in Hollywood, I don't think we'd get very far. But we're really fortunate that here in Hawaii we have an organization, Pacific Islanders in Communications, which collaborates with PBS to support stories like this and to get them out for public broadcast. And so we were very fortunate to be supported by them, and that made it possible for us to travel to Tonga and to edit the film and to work with uh, Kumuhina, who's a co-producer on the film, to put it all together. Now, I haven't seen it, but has it, has it had a broadcast date on PBS already? Yes, it was broadcast on PBS this May, and it continues to be broadcast on PBS Hawaii um, probably twice a year, so we're very happy about that. It was also broadcast in New Zealand and Australia, where there are so many Pacific Islander communities, uh, in Europe on Arte, and it's really getting around the world. If I can just give another shout-out to why, like, pick funding is so important, I think you may have noticed the Oscar nominations were announced. And immediately after, because of all the challenges that the Academy Awards has had with, you know, bringing forward diverse voices, the hashtags that became popular on social media initially were Oscars so white, Oscars so male, and Oscars so straight. Because once again, there really aren't, uh, there's no women directors that were nominated. LGBT representation is nil in this year's Academy Awards. So the GLAAD Media Awards have kind of become known informally as the LGBT Oscars. And I think what's significant about PIC is PIC is one of the organizations that gets diverse voices onto the national media landscape through its specific Heartbeat series, which goes out, I think, to like 80% of public television stations across the U.S., was there anything that you were struck by in your visits down to Tonga, Dean? I think for me the biggest surprise was how close the Leyte community is to the religious community. Because here we're accustomed to uh, trans people and gay people sort of being enemies of religion because they've been so bad to us. And there, religion is just, it's like oxygen. Like you can't live without it. Everybody is religious. And all of the Leites were highly religious and would go to services when they could. And so it was really interesting to, to see that integration and getting along together. You know, we often say Hawaii is a small place. Tonga is a lot smaller than that. And you can really see it in the way people get along. And it was wonderful that some of the religious people, including the, the bishop or the head of the, the Catholic Church there, was one of the greatest supporters of the ladies. Um, Quite a change from what we're used to here. And, you know, there is talk about, oh, you know, sometimes to get an authentic voice, you it needs to be by and about. But you folks uh, aren't from Tonga you know, or Hawaii. Uh, I don't know what your backgrounds are, but, um, you know, you, you are still able to capture kind of the, the truth, be, I guess, behind, you know, this reality. Yeah, well, projects like this are really collaborations. You know, it's not about one person or, or a set of people who are kind of determining and controlling everything. And 
So following the Kumuhina project, Hina moved from in front of the camera to behind. He became actually a producer on this project and a cultural advisor because she speaks Tonga and she has much experience in the kingdom on many different fronts. And then uh, Joey, as we were traveling with Jolene um, with the film and festivals and other places, she would often tell the story that when she knew that we were going to be bringing the Kumuhina film down to screen in Tonga, she had in the back of her mind uh, a plan to hatch that would address the dream that she had always had, that they would be able to tell their stories to a broader audience. So we're flying down to show our film, and she's thinking, when these guys get here, I'm going to ask them <laughs> if they'll make a film about us. She was hatching a plan. <laughs> yeah. So it, it really became a collaboration, you know, and she is an amazing force in Tonga, as Dean said. You know, she's well-known and respected by the royal family and many other people across the country. So she, it was she who opened doors and opportunities for the cameras to capture what they captured. It really was that kind of collaboration. I think we found that throughout our work. We are, of course, um, two white gay guys coming in. Uh, we're clearly not from Tonga or from Samoa or, the, or from Hawaii. Um, but people have been so interested in telling their stories and getting it out that we've felt like it's been a very natural and a very organic type of collaboration. And I think people have learned from the history of our films that we're not out to exploit them, but rather to, um, to lift them up and to lift their own stories up. And this has continued uh, when we were showing Ladies in Waiting and Traveling Around the Pacific with Joey. We were fortunate to be invited to Samoa, and there we learned about a group of transgender men. So these are young people who were born as females but uh, feel inside that they are male, and they formed a wonderful group called The Rogers, uh, and they're doing their own thing, and uh, we're just coming out with a, a new film about that group, also supported by Pacific Islanders and Communication that will come out soon. Okay. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's, the Rogers are known as the first visible group of transgender men in the Pacific called the Fa'atama. All right. And when do you think uh, we're going to see the debut? Very soon. Very soon. <laughs> this spring. Yeah. All yeah. right. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for you. having us, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. You've been hearing from Dean Hammer and Joe Wilson, nominated for a GLAAD Award for their film, Ladies in Waiting, that was funded by the Pacific Islanders in Communications. America, are we ready? The next test for Democrats and for the election process is the New Hampshire primary. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. We've teamed up with Laura Canoy and New Hampshire Public Radio for a national call-in special on primary night. Iowa failed to shine in its moment in the spotlight. How will New Hampshire do with its first-in-the-nation primary? The time to listen and to participate is now. America, are we ready? Tuesday afternoon at 2. That's it for today. Up tomorrow, we hear more about the coronavirus and preparedness from the Hawaii Healthcare Association. Got a question or comment? Please call our talkback line. Leave your comments. That number, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And if you missed any of the show, want to find a past one, find them all on the Conversation page. Look under HPR News and Talk on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.